sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yeah, I'm Nate, with your pal nine, Aaron. Uh, what have you been doing with yourself since last we spoke? Yay, yesterday. <laughs> well, I just want to warn the listeners, during the bumper time, Nate is having to use his computer microphone. So if it sounds funny or Sean hasn't been able to fix it, that's why. Mm-hmm. But he'll be back on the interview part with his real microphone. Um, what have I been doing? I finally finished a great project of unfriending all but my family members on Facebook. Really? All but your family members? Why did you choose that particular filter? What was behind it? Um, well, I, I had kind of wanted to not be on Facebook uh, years ago, mm-hmm. but we, our family had bought one of those Oculus Quest 2 full, yeah. uh, virtual uh-huh. reality things. And when they first came out, I don't believe it's still the case, but when we got it, it had to be synced to a Facebook account, which if I was smart at the time, I would have just made a different Facebook account, Uh synced it to mine. So I couldn't cancel. I still can't cancel my Facebook without losing all the games and apps that my children put on there. Oh, so they trapped me. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was not the only one pissed off about that. Yeah. Um, But... I I finally was thinking like Facebook is one of those things that I rarely go on, but it can be a nice time killer mm-hmm. sitting somewhere, whatever. But I always walk away feeling quite bad. Yeah. Um, but what I didn't expect was the emotional reaction. Yeah. Uh, I had to delete friends one at a time. Uh-oh. I tried to look up how to just, batch delete things and i i couldn't find it so it took a long time to delete all those people yeah and did you feel like you were like assassinating people i I felt a variety of things one Mm -hmm. like well i don't want them to feel bad like this is personal but then i would think like i haven't talked to this person in 10 years 15 years Uh like it's okay and they they have my phone number if they want to get a hold of me. This is not a necessary medium. Right. But then then there were others that I just kind of felt sad because they meant a lot to me. And and that loyal part of me uh, that yeah, wants yeah. to keep everyone together, just it, it, what it was, it felt like a little mini grieving process of saying, wow. you know what, I might, I could always check in on you. And see mm-hmm. what your now teenage children look like with mm-hmm. some high school friend, mm-hmm. and to think, I don't, I don't need that. It's okay to let that go. Yeah. Uh, it was like a bunch of little, little grieving moments with a, a lot of people, but in the end, I felt like, okay, I am present. I do not have to spend my mental and emotional energy on relationships that aren't relationships with people that I do not talk to that are not right. in my life. And uh, it was what you said the other day about becoming what right sized or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really felt like becoming more right sized and kind of felt like a relief 
when I was done. So, so was that a, a ripple, do you think, from our conversation with John Eldridge? Oh, it totally was. That was, uh, it was something I had thought about doing, but just hadn't mm-hmm. pulled the trigger on. And after that conversation, I was like, I am doing this. I am going to become more right-sized. This is this is ridiculous that yeah. there are 1,500 faces staring at me that I am not connected to and that I can be connected to anyone that has my phone number that I'm in actual connection with. Yeah, sure. So it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I was more emotional than I thought I would be about the whole process because Facebook has been a part of my life for how long's it been since that thing came out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I have found myself referencing that conversation uh, often since we talked with John. Uh, several things that he said just stuck. And uh, yeah, so that's just one. Hey, uh, I, I just want to let you in on this. I have been listening the last couple of days to a book that is rocking my world. I don't know whether you've heard of it. Seems to me that maybe a Samson guy on Slack, somebody may have referenced this book. And uh, But anyway, through a series of, I don't know, unlikely events, I found myself listening to a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy by Dr. Robert Glover. Mm. Yeah. I'm feeling conf- uh, uh, two things while listening to the book. First of all, is I, I hear him describe the uh, the nice guy who prototypically has a uh, is uh, not unusual for that guy to be an, an addict, not unusual for that guy to be a sex addict. Um, as I listen to his description of the nice guy and his prescriptions for what to do in treatment, tell his own story and then the stories of others that are in his groups. First of all, I can see how much of what he recommends I am already doing, have already done. I can see progress as I read the book. I'm not, I'm not the guy I used to be. At the same time, I have to face the fact that those patterns are still present and I still have tendencies in directions that take me away from integrity and strength and masculinity and uh, yeah. So does, does he give a, a fairly concise definition of what a nice guy is? What that means? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm going to give the book another listen before I attempt really to encapsulate it for the audience. But yeah, he does a very good job of describing uh, the nice guy. And it's a, a very, very uh, helpful book. Well, all, all right. right. Well, I, I will was, look forward to the upcoming uh, <laughs> thoughts yeah, yeah, on it because yeah, yeah. I want to know. I, I know what I'm picturing, and I might be way off. <laughs> so, fine. Leave us on a cliffhanger. If anyone <laughs> wants to jump Nate's gun, you can just order the book for yourself. That's right. Well, let's uh, get, let's we'll get to Justin our— can get him on the podcast. That would be awesome. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, let's get to our guest for today. Enough of this banter. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, listeners, stick with us, and we will be right back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. We are fortunate to have as our guest this week a gifted artist, works in multiple media. Uh, but the one we're most concerned with today is a book that he's written, Exiting the Cave. Blaine Hogan is joining us today. Welcome, Blaine. 
Hey guys, thank you so much for having me. You didn't know we were concerned about you, but this book, we, we've got hey. some, we've got some concerns, Blank. You, I, I, I would, I would if I were you. <laughs> well, you are Colin from Georgia, where you're an active guy. How old are you? You look both young and wise at the same time. Oh my God! Thank you so much. What a, an incredible compliment. I'm 43 years old, and uh, I've uh, I've lived some life. Uh, so maybe that's why you're getting a little taste of both. And you are married there. Do you have children? I do. I've got, we've got three daughters, uh, 11, 9, and 5. Oh, okay. Right. Three little so, birds. But you are in a house surrounded by women. I sure am. We, we recently got a dog, and uh, I was insistent that the dog would be a male so that I could just have a buddy. Just someone just to hang out with, um, uh, just a little extra testosterone. So, yep, it's it's me, my wife, our three daughters, and Wrigley, uh, our cavapoo. <laughs> nice. Well, any dog with poo in the name is going to be a special, special friend. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Most creatures won't put up with it, but dogs, they still they love lo- it. They love it. They love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, is is this household anything like the one you grew up in? Oh, isn't this household any? I it it in many ways it couldn't be more different, and I couldn't be more grateful. Um, I think that uh, I had a a, um, a a therapist slash professor in graduate school. A story I tell in the book is I accidentally went to seminary, and while <laughs> I was there, um, uh, in one of our psychology uh, classes, um, one of the professors said. You know that you've succeeded as a parent if your children go to therapy for different reasons than you did. And and so, you know, I mean, ours are still young. We are putting money away already for the therapy fund. Um, But I I do think that, um, you know, we've been really lucky uh, to create uh, a, a dramatically different household, certainly than I grew up in. Um, which was uh, a tumultuous one. And you, you said you have some concerns, and I would agree. <laughs> well, I actually, you you just brought up a bit of wisdom right there. I, I know many parents, including mine, uh, have a little savings for their children's wedding. I don't know anyone that has a special savings for their marriage counseling. And I oh, feel yeah. like that would be <laughs> way more beneficial for so many people. I, I, I would agree. If only um, just the idea of it, you know, so that there, there's this sense that um, this is a normal part of our, of our lives, is that we're always going to need help. And um, this is a great place to, to go for that. And, uh, you know, here's uh, accrued some interest <laughs> And yeah. either buy a house or get some therapy. I don't it, know which it, one would it could be better. Even, it could be like a swear jar for parents. Exactly. That every that's time exactly I'm right. a bad dad, I have to put 20 bucks in the therapy jar. That's right. That's going to be needed. <laughs> that's so right. So you, yeah, you're not getting away with the phrase that you accidentally went to seminary or, uh, and, and just gloss over that. What in the world sure. did that mean? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess I kind of have to go back. So I grew up in Minnesota uh, when I was nine years old. Uh, I was in a community theater production of The Wizard of Oz. And I knew from that moment that I wanted to be an actor. Uh, My family has performers in our background. We were vaudeville performers and people had bands and, you know, did all kinds of things. And so it was a really natural fit for me. 
Um, and so when I graduated from high school, uh, I set out to become a professional actor, went to theater school and then traveled the country, you know, going uh, just all over, chasing gig after gig, working at living history museums in Newport, <laughs> Rhode Island, uh, terrible dinner theater productions of guys and dolls in Coral Springs, Florida. Uh, I mean, really, really rough stuff. Um, doing all kinds of temp jobs in between, just, you know, trying to eke out a living and then ended up in Chicago in 2004, 2005. And, um, Got a lot of luck. Uh, started working at some of the best theaters in Chicago. Uh, was going back and forth, um, auditioning for Broadway producers in New York City. I'd gotten my SAG card, which is um, you know mm -hmm. what allows you to be on TV in a, a, a television show called Prison Break. And uh, everything was kind of going up and to the right. And at that same time, uh, I began having these panic attacks that were taking me to the hospital. And uh, I came to understand that my body was trying to alert me of uh, some of the darker places that uh, my body was wanting me to pay attention to. Specifically, um, I had uh, developed a pretty severe sex addiction at that time mm -hmm. in my life. And so uh, my career is going up and to the right. In many ways, my personal life is falling apart. And I recognize I need to, to do something. And uh, someone gives me a book called Wounded Heart by a guy named Dan Allender. And mm -hmm. uh, Wounded Heart is the it's, uh, it's for adult victims of childhood sexual abuse. So what mm -hmm. I've not told you of my story is that is part of my story. Growing up in Minnesota, my dad was a, an alcoholic, a sex addict, um, a, a food disordered um, eating. My mom was a very severe diabetic. And um, I grew up in a neighborhood that was very open sexually, and it opened me up to a lot of dark places that um, really affected me. And up until that point, I had not dealt with. And so mm -hmm. I read this book, um, and I'm balancing these two things. I, I also, at that time, realized that Dan Allender had begun a, a seminary, a graduate school out in Seattle. And I don't know what compelled me other than I suppose you can call it the Holy Spirit, um, mm -hmm. some sort of prompting that pushed or pulled. And I called my agent and said, hey, I need to take two years off and I got to go do this program. Uh, and it turns out it was a seminary. I, I went um, for what I thought was more of a two-year recovery program, essentially. Yeah. Uh, but I came out with a master's in theology and culture and uh, an, uh, an experience that completely transformed my life. And so the book is really the story of how I found myself in a cave um, because of the trauma I experienced as a child and how through the last 15 years, um, I have been set free. Hmm. So you're really doing your Allender story work in book form. like That's correct. So yep. if, pe if people don't understand, and we were just talking about this yesterday with a guest who uh, teaches Allender stuff, um, this is a chance for people to deep dive that a little bit more and watch a man process. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, you know, the, the idea is you cannot understand where you're going unless you understand where you've been. 
And as I even began writing the book, in fact, I pitched a completely different book. I pitched a book about the creative process, and I was going to include mm-hmm. points of my story along the way. Um, but I think as I began writing, I recognized I felt like I'm, I'm more naturally a storyteller than I am a teacher. And so mm-hmm. instead of sort of telling or teaching, as they say, um, how to do story work, I just chose the rote of I'm just going to show you my story. Uh, and that is what the the book is. So um, my hope is that as people would read it, um, that they would feel some amount of courage to do some of the same work uh, that I was able to do as well. Were there any fearful emotions as that turn from what you thought the book would be as it moved towards, oh, I am just self-revealing to whomever happens to pick up this book like what what were some of the feelings most people are protective at that point yeah i you know um i'm tempted to joke and say no not not at all um and then also at the same time i uh i'm a bit of an overshare by nature um i think mm-hmm. that artists can be such um but really uh, as i made that switch over um another thing uh that uh, something Dan Allender says a lot is you can't take anyone farther than you've gone yourself. And so if you're wanting um, uh, your, your audience, your listeners, your readers um, to be moved into considering their own story, you have to be willing to go first. You have to be willing to um, be the first one to raise your hand and, and share. Um, and so certainly there was a lot of, um, anxiety about that. And in fact, there still, still is sometimes I, I moments before getting on a podcast, I'm like, God, I didn't need to do the, any of this. <laughs> why am I doing this? Um, why, why did I write all that? Why did I share all of that? Um, uh, Brene Brown talks about the vulnerability hangover. And I feel like that is uh, perpetual, um, but I, I think as I, uh, a chapter I write in the book near the end, it's a phrase my wife says a lot is free people, free people. And mm-hmm. so continuing to have these conversations about what I wrote, um, about the freedom that I've experienced. Um, uh, I, I hope it, it does, it does free others. And that makes the feelings, um, of anxiety and of vulnerability truly worth it. Were you married when you made that big step to go to Seattle for two years? So uh, my wife and I have a very tumultuous relationship, which we talk a lot about in the book. We met in college, and so she, as my girlfriend, very on and off, uh, was a part of some of the deepest, darkest places of my addiction. Uh, When I set off to go to school, we were not married at the time, and we kind of left it as a we'll see what this place does to us kind of thing. Um, and she herself comes from uh, a family of addicts. And so in many ways, we found ourselves the perfect codependent partners until Mm -hmm. we both began doing our own story work, understanding how our two stories of our families of origins were merging together. And now our work is to how do we use the tools that we've learned to redeem those parts of each other's story as we endeavor to create our own family. And so, um, you know, I attribute my marriage very much to that seminary and to Dan Hallander uh, that I um, accidentally found myself at. Now, now, your wife being a writer, how did she feel 
during this process of you deciding to become a writer, even if you didn't feel like a writer? Was that just a a whole different new relational dynamic and connection you guys had? Yeah, well, I mean, we have been collaborating on a lot of different levels for many, many years. Um, me as a director and her as a writer, and certainly I would, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a screenwriter, but I'd never authored a book like this. Um, in in many ways, it it was also a very deep collaboration. Um, she became kind of the chief editor of the project wow. as we wrote a lot of this stuff, and even kind of choosing what parts of our story we were going to share and, and lots of counsel from a, a th- our therapist of, well, what is just my story? And I just have to share that part, even though it's challenging. And um, and uh, we've actually done a couple of podcasts together, uh, which has been really fun to dialogue about um, the book and, you know, uh, being a addicts and living with addicts and um how does that show up in in relationships uh but uh she's really the true author of our home and so uh, i'm anxious for her publishing uh career to take off she's working on a number of projects at the moment nice i have a question blaine uh, as a recovering sex addict myself and somebody has written a bit uh how did your recovery experience impact your creativity? Did you find that it unlocked things that weren't present before? Did your productivity increase? Did your creativity expand? Uh, did you see a payoff professionally yeah. <laughs> and personally and creatively when you got into recovery and began to address the deep issues? Yeah, and I would so say, how. yeah, well, I would say eventually, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the long slog into kind of, um, staying in the present is, um, more of a creative life suck than it, it is a generative one, right? You know, just going like one day at a time, one minute at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where I'm at trying to stay in the present. Um, and something I talk about and kind of the midpoint of the book is uh, after I had, uh, Margaret and I had been married, even just for a couple of months, and I was going one evening through a bunch of bins. We were trying to, you know, quite literally put our lives together. And I'd finished um, seminary and, um, you know, had been sober for uh, a, a, a while, um, but still was really wrestling with how to um, open myself up to a different kind of intimacy than I had ever known before. Um, and one evening I'm going through this container of old scrap, um, clippings that I clip, you know, reviews and things from when I was in college or, you know, bounced around the country and started looking at my career as an, as an actor, uh, and had, like I said, had achieved some amount of success and, was trying to understand like how how had I been uh, so free to create in my professional life, but yet lacked some of the freedom and energy and tools to do that in my personal life. Mm-hmm. And there was a real switch when I said, oh, well, why can't I just apply all the principles of um, my artistry and my creativity that I do in my professional life to my actual real personal life. And mm. when I began to do that, it began to unlock all kinds of levels of creativity professionally because I wasn't thinking of being a professional creative. I was thinking of how do I be a, a really great human? If I can become a better human, 
uh, if that's my goal and I'm putting all of my effort and creativity into, into doing that. And by that, I mean, just even thinking through, um, the lens of imagination, for example. So, you know, an artist's, uh, idea of creating anything is something from nothing. So you have to imagine the future to create the, the next new thing. So I just started really doing that, just imagining a different future with my wife. We didn't have kids, but imagining, oh my gosh, having an 11 year old who's going to middle school and uh, doing all of these sort of exercises that one would do as a creative, but applying that towards my life. And as I began to uh, imagine and reimagine a new future, it literally began to change and alter my present in the very same way that a, a, a project or a song comes about. You begin to imagine it. And then as you imagine it, you find the right note right there in the present and mm -hmm. the song begins to take shape. And so um, absolutely, uh, it's a very convoluted wow. Rick Rubin <laughs> type of <laughs> process. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah. Yeah, I, I love that idea. Since uh, I mean, in in my life and certainly many others, the fragmented pieces of here's my work life and creative life and home life and secret sin life are all like these different things. And I think, okay, I can maintain these while having these separate. And I I love that picture of integration and integrity that all the stuff is made of the same stuff. Yeah. Well, and that's the truth, isn't it? I mean, um, try as we may, we cannot separate those things anyway. Um, mm -hmm. They, they, uh, they all are entwined, and they're all they're already integrated. We're the ones doing the work trying to disintegrate them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as I've tried to give myself over to the process of just, well, they're already already connected what are they all trying to say to each other david white uh the poet he's got a great book called the three marriages and he talks about you know your vocation uh your marriage with a spouse and your marriage to the world um he says there's just no thing as as balance there's just marriage and it already is and so the sooner that we begin to try and accept and embrace um the integration the sooner that we can find kind of all the synergies um, I, I love that you you just said it takes more work to be disintegrated because all those things are already integrated yeah. so i'm having to put the effort into the disintegration and there's work mm -hmm. at first to dehabituate myself from the ways that i've done that sure but but once that's done man i mean nate you've talked about this how much simpler life becomes at that moment how much more time and money you have <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you, you really do. But I, but it's not, not for, um, it's a painful process to reintegrate because most of our life is spent doing the work of disintegrating. We're preventing, uh, our, our bodies from having to experience the pain and trauma that we experienced, uh, in, in the past. Um, but the more that we accept, embrace, go back into our past, um, let some of that work be done in us and through us, 
uh, I think the, then you can experience some of the, the, the freedom, but it's a, it's, it's not, it's not a lot of fun getting there. You used the word healing earlier, uh, that you did this work and you found healing. Define that for me and what it, what it means to be healed and still a work in progress. Mm. Wow. Good question. I think healing is is a work of of integrating all of the the parts. Um, when I was in school, Dan told us this. Um, I'm going to get real kind of interstellar, Back to the Future, if you don't mind. Uh, he says we we think of time as linear, past, present, future, but the way we experience time is uh, much more cyclical, uh, and it's actually past, future, present. And by that, he means that anything that happened to us in the past, particularly bad, we imagine it's going to happen in the future. And however we imagine the future is how we live in the present. Mm -hmm. And so what he would say is the easiest thing to change um, in those kind of three categories of past, future, present is your past which is a ridiculous thing to say because the past is done, it's over. Um, and uh, he says, you can't change the action of the past. You can't change what happened, but you can change the narrative. You can, you can, you can recognize that maybe in some ways you have been, been an unreliable narrator to your own story, to your own trauma. And because you've been an unreliable narrator, what you're imagining is going to happen in the future is very unlikely to happen, but it's affecting how you live in the present. And so when I think about healing and I think about integration, I think about the generative work of going back into the past, recognizing those dark, sort of traumatic, uh, formative stories that you have taken with you You've used those to imagine a future that has not yet happened, but is keeping you locked in a present that won't allow you to be free and integrated. And so as I've done the work of sort of reverse engineering my story, I uh, have found what I would call healing. Um, because the thing that was locked in finite, which I thought was the thing, the worst thing that happened to me in my past that catapulted me into a life of addiction, which was my abuse, um, is not as fixed and finite as I thought it was. It's actually much more malleable um, and it can compel me to uh, a, a completely different life and story. And I don't know if there's anything other than healing that I could call that type of work. Yeah. I mean, you did, you described that that was a wound that was still bleeding and you were having the panic attacks and all of that. That's stuff. right. And yep. the body, yep. My body had kept the score. My body was uh, alerting me of the place that needed care. Um, and I had to go back into some of those places. I had to go back in a lot of ways into the cave and uh, work work on that on that story. I've got to say, Blaine, that was that was the best, uh, clearest explanation of narrative therapy I have ever heard. Mm -hmm. I am going to replay that over and over again. Thank you uh, uh, for um, giving us the theoretical underpinning to understand uh, this therapeutic approach.
That mm. was beautiful. Oh. Thanks. There's, there's, there's kind of a gospel awe I have to this because this is <laughs> to say more. This is how we were so uniquely created, and I think it's at the core of what we're told in Scripture to be transformed, but not by going to church, not by read little more, not get the right book, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, mm. and that our past is not a thing. Our past is locked in memory and story, yep. and so we can literally grow to have a different lens, uh, and and one that has all of the grace and mercy that is offered to us by yeah. the Father, that then changes the reality of the past because it's how we see it. And brain chemistry would support that as well, that as we begin doing that kind of story reframing work, the synapses that had formed is this is certainly true in addiction um that once you begin to um uh, give your brain something healthier it cr literally the brain rewires itself um to a degree um that would fully support a renewing of your mind because it is a i mean your your mm -hmm. brain chemistry has altered and that that is the and that is the transformative thing that happens as yeah. as we experience this new filter. And it's just it's how we were made. We were made for this. That's Long right. before we knew the science behind it, That's right. humans were experiencing it over that's and right. over again. Yeah, So right. beautiful. Right. Yeah. Nice. Well, here you are, a man still in process, yet a man who has seen the bleeding stop. And yet there are still scars. What do you feel when you look at the scars where things were bleeding back then? What is it? What do you experience emotionally now? I've been, I've been working on a story for, oh, probably since I was in graduate school. So 2006 now. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a bit of a fable when I, when I think of the log line, it uh, is the story um, of a young man who becomes an unlikely king when he realizes that his stains have become his greatest strengths. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit of a, a fable. It's sort of where the wild things are meets um, mud. I don't know if you remember that yep. old film, mm -hmm. right? The Matthew McConaughey one? Is that what we're That's talking right. about? Okay. Yep, yep. And uh, so I'm... I feel grateful um, because they are reminders of the places that I've been actually um, in the later on in the book. I, I talk about this tattoo that I got. Let's see if I can pull it up here. You can see it right here. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I had for a long time I mean, as an actor, I had um, decided I was never going to get a tattoo. I, I, my, my body was my canvas <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to be free of blemish so that I could in, you know, in, in um, inhabit whoever I was playing. Um, and what, when I was in Nashville, my best friend visited and I, for a long time, I, I'd said, you know what, I think I'm ready to, to, to create a mark. And I wanted four perfect, uh, four perfectly straight lines, one each that would represent my wife and my three daughters. And so I had done all of this research on, you know, different kinds of needles and, you know, where to go and on and on and on. 
and uh, chose this place. It's supposed to be the, the best place in Nashville to go get a first time tattoo. And um, my friend and I, we, we walk up to this place and there's a guy outside and um, he kind of looks like he's maybe having a bit of a smoke break um, of the ganja um, <laughs> quality. And, and I'm walking in and I say to my friend, I'm like, oh, I, I hope that's not my guy. And we walk in and I pay the money and they bring me in the back. And wouldn't you know it, the guy who walks into my stall was the guy from outside. And I'm like, well, I've come this far. I can't stop now. It's four lines. What am forced? Who could mess up four perfectly straight lines? <laughs> <laughs> and so I get this tattoo and that night I'm staring at it and I'm having a literal panic attack, probably not dissimilar to the panic attacks I, I'd had you know, a decade or so before. Uh, and I'm looking and I'm like, this is, what am I going to do? These are not for, this is not what I imagined. Why did I go through with it? Why did I, I could have said, no, I could stopped. And I, and I didn't. And so then um, uh, we'd been staying away. Uh, we were at an Airbnb that next morning. We came back to my family and I showed my daughters this tattoo. And I was like, you guys, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get them straightened. I'm going to have to get them um, taken off and redone. And, and my daughter, Eloise, who's our middle one. And the middle ones are always the most honest ones. She's like, dad, why would you do that? We're not straight and normal. Uh -huh. We're curvy and weird and we're bumpy and none of us are perfect. Like, uh, like it would be offen it was she's basically saying it would be offensive of me now to try and alter what actually was a perfect um, example yeah. of who we all are. And still to this day, I, I I struggle as the the weather gets warmer and I'm looking at this tattoo because I've marked myself physically um, in 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 a way that is that is. Is the truest form of my past and of my future. Um, and I couldn't be more grateful as much as I'm like, Oh God, I wish they were straight. I want them to be straight and perfect. Um, they're, they're not. And I'm grateful for it. So when I, I look at that, I see the scars of my past. Um, but I see arrows towards the future and they are bumpy and they're not perfect. And, um, and I'm grateful. That's, that is beautiful. Mm. My, my cousin gave me a piece of art for my wedding gift guy that used cardboard boxes and cut pieces out and then filled them with resin and put like art inside the resin. And, wow. And she, she gave me this piece that had a crack through the resin. It was not perfect in any way and the name of the piece across the bottom was complete mm -hmm. and yep. i loved that the most because every time i looked and said this thing doesn't really look complete the the voice in my head would say who the hell are you to tell the artist that's what right. he has declared to be complete is that's incomplete right. that's right mm -hmm. that's right yeah what a beautiful story so you've already alluded to this with the story about the the king, the king in the mud. Um, your 
you're talking in very Allender archetypes, and I wonder how much you are now aware and purposeful when you're writing that you're writing stories that have lines through the millennia, that it's Mm. the same stories and you're recognizing pieces of that and bringing it out. Yeah. I, there, um, it's a great book. I I don't have it in my office right now slash closet. Um, but it's called the writer's journey. Um, and it, it really is sort of the, one of the best, I I can't remember the author's name. Well, I'll find it. We can put it in the show notes. Um, but the best dis- this it's distillation of sort of all of the character archetypes sort of, you know, um, from Robert McKee to Joseph Campbell, sort of all, all condensed. Um, and very truly, I, I feel like those it's, you know, from the, the short film nineties inspired musical that I'm writing right now about a mm-hmm. basketball kid and this sort of epic that I know is will make its way out eventually. Um, very truly, yeah. All the characters were were all the same. We're all telling the same story. We're all trying to get out of the same cave, and um, we can't do it alone. Uh, we need our guides, and we need our mentors, um, and we need the forcing mechanism of challenge and obstacle to form us in these crucibles. Um, that will allow us to tell better stories, to become more integrated, and to set each other free. So, I um, I feel like I'm always deep in those sort of mythic spaces. Um, and again, it's because we already are. I'm just trying to um, stop myself from uh, uh, disintegrating myself. Uh, long enough to <laughs> to feel both the goodness and the heartache of being, um, you know, in those in those spaces uh, that are just true and and good in the places, as you say, that that's where, what we were were created for. We're created to to live in that in that garden in the here and now, um, with our feet dug in the soil, um, standing within a lineage of some pretty epic stories that will continue to go on forever and ever. Oh, listeners, your stories are epic. I love your that. Your stories are so epic. That's mm. beautiful. Well, before we tell people how to follow what you're up to and get a hold of your book, uh, I have to ask you, how tall are you? <laughs> oh, Aaron, I, I, I'm a strong 5'8 in a pair of high tops. Okay. Right. <laughs> I was like, just curious. I'm like a Tom Cruise, you know, like put, I need a, a lift. Like my <laughs> wife's tall. My wife's five, eight. She might be five, nine. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've always been the short kid, man. Well, I, I'm, I'm not a follower of sports as Nate will attest, but I, I did go on your website and it had a picture of you next to LeBron James, which yeah. I don't know how tall he is or he's quite tall, but, but yeah, I, you sure looked like a tiny person next to that man. <laughs> That's right. I, ju- That's I just right. needed perspective to know, like, yeah. oh, you're you're yeah. you're fine. A, you're average size man. He's I'm a, not. I'm a slightly less than average size man. The photo, to be honest, is shooting a little up, so it's not to my advantage. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit skewed. Um, 
but yes, once I was, I shot, uh, I, uh, another little fun fact, um, the same campaign that I shot LeBron James in was the same one I shot Arnold Schwarzenegger in. I saw, yeah. And, and, and he is quite short. You know, he's maybe five, nine. Really? Oh, okay. Really? I didn't, I didn't know that they did a yeah. good job over the years of, uh, making yeah. him look taller than he was. <laughs> Yep, I'll tell you what. When we when when I went to go shake his hand, I thought, "Oh, okay, okay, okay. I can take him." <laughs> yeah, but okay. what he lacks in height, he makes up for in width. I'm sure. <laughs> so much width, and yep, yep, yep. He's a uh, he's still a, he's still a force. Well, mm-hmm. listeners, you must now be curious. Where did I watch these things? Uh, so, where can people go to kind of check out what you're up to and yep. what you're so, involved in? Yeah, so much of my work now is as a commercial filmmaker, and so you can see a lot of that work at BlaineHogan.com. Um, and uh, if you want to get the book, it's available wherever books are sold or ExitTheCaveBook.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. It has been an absolute delight, Blaine. Mm, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Pirate Monk. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, that was a good story. I enjoyed that. <laughs> I, you know what I can say? I was I'm watching him, listening to him. Uh, and it doesn't help to learn that he's uh, not the biggest guy in the world. I just kept seeing Martin Short the whole time. Anyway. I don't think that's a compliment. And I had never thought Martin Short once. Really? I think Martin Short is perhaps the most brilliant comedian of his generation. So to me, it was a huge compliment. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, I, I love seeing all of the story conversations we've been having recently put into that kind of practice and mm-hmm. that there's a book. I think it's kind of like your book is, yeah. is kind of walks people through a practical way of telling their story and... And it's just helpful. It's helpful yeah. to have that example. Yeah, yeah. So check them out, listeners. See what's happening in Blaine's world. That's right. And let us know what you thought of this uh, conversation. Was it helpful? Did it spark any insights of your own? Uh, anything you are inspired to do as a result of listening to this show. And you can reach us at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. All right. Well, I guess that wraps it up for today. I guess. Well, you know how we close it, Aaron. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Enrique. (laughs) All right, Enrique. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Arg. Oh, see, now I thought I would get some different. What would Enrique say? You know what? I feel immediately like I'll be accused of racism <laughs> if I answer that question anyway. I'm not okay. stepping into that bear You're trap. Skip the arc. Okay. That's Enrique good. says arg like the rest of the pirates. <laughs> the Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, 
please visit samsonsociety.com.